Welcome to the Always On Podcast. I am your host, Duncan McPherson. And on this podcast, our objective is to enable our audience, which are high caliber fee-for-service professionals, to always be working on their business and on themselves, personally and professionally. And on today's podcast, I had a great conversation with Ted Jenkins, where we talked about a case study on maximizing your exit strategy, where we put a specific emphasis on three E's. Drive your enterprise value, maximize your exit strategy, and elevate yourself qualitatively through the exercise. Hope you enjoy the conversation. And uh, if you like this podcast, please like and share, tell your colleagues. And if you have any ideas or topics and themes you'd like to hear on this podcast in the future, just let us know. Thanks for listening. I am so excited about this conversation with Ted Jenkins. We've been working together now going on two years collaborating with financial professionals on many things, actually, uh, including the shift from organic to scalable growth but also in getting way out in front of their eventual, or in some cases, imminent liquidity event and all of the different factors that go into that. And uh, Ted, I'm really glad you made time for us uh, today because I know you're a very busy guy, but I really want to emphasize many of the dynamics that go into the concept of sell and stay. So first of all, thanks for being here. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. Love doing these podcasts. Yeah, likewise. And I want to frame this uh, in three E's. Okay. So I want to talk a little bit about what it looks like to methodically drive enterprise value. Then of course, how to maximize the exit strategy. But then thirdly, and the first two are pretty quantitative, but this one is so qualitative. And I'm totally shocked at how I underestimated how this exercise elevates a financial professional psyche and rejuvenates their sense of purpose and the restoration of their just enthusiasm for the job. I mean, I talked to a couple of teams that are pretty far down the pipeline uh, about to, you know, achieve their moment of truth here. And it sounds like both teams have found the fountain of youth. They are so excited. (laughs) And so let's start there. Well, look, I think I found the fountain youth as well. You know, I, I did the transaction myself now a little bit more than three years ago. And it's ironic, Duncan, that we spend most of our lives as financial professionals talking to our clients about these two words, work optional. Like, what would it be like one day if you could choose the projects that you wanted to choose in life and not the ones that were mandatory to pay bills or you felt that you were obligated to come into work to do a J-O-B every day? And one of the one of the unintended consequences of looking at doing this kinds of transaction where you either de-risk or you take some chips off the table, whether it's partially or fully, is how much you might think about your own planning and your own psyche when it comes to being work optional. And so what I have found with the financial professionals that have gone through this process is that 
they're able for the first time in their lives, Duncan, to basically take a deep breath like that sigh to say, you know what? I'm going to be okay even in my own financial picture. And actually, the enjoyment of the business sort of gets a, a, a life breathed into it up and into itself. And I'm finding with people that it's like, okay, well, now I'm going to work with my clients. I'm still going to be doing what I'm doing. But you know what? I, I don't have to have such a, a heavy attitude every day. And it doesn't always feel like, well, what happens if 10 clients walk out the door? What happens if two staff people walk out the door? And I, I am so excited to see some of my fellow professionals just be so happy. And I, you know, myself, Duncan, I'm, I'm as happy as I've ever been in my life because that, that stress almost is, is gone. Work is optional for me as it is for the people to go through this. And now I get to choose what I do every day. And that brings real fulfillment, Duncan. It brings real fulfillment. It's so powerful. And those words matter. And I think what's interesting is that a financial professional spends all of their business time talking to clients and just strategizing around this concept of what financial independence looks like and how to get there. And in many ways, it's abstract. And the shift from abstract to conceptual, like when it really happens, is so incredibly liberating. I mean, we all talk about getting to a point where our money makes more money than we do. Right, right. And, and we go to work because we want to, not because we have to. I, I think, you know, I, I, it's one thing to say, okay, look, the weight is going to be off your shoulders. I can't overstate that. And especially when you think about what we've come through in the last couple of years, a force majeure. Now we're entering into what looks like to be some pretty sustained volatility. And even through it all, as, as these teams approach the other side, I'm convinced they're better at what they do, their sense of purpose, the view that this is a calling. They're finding another gear and, and propelling themselves to self-actualization. I just can't overstate it. Well, I think it's interesting because, you know, we we tell clients a lot of times that you've got to have a balance of enjoying your money today and also saving for the future. Yeah. But there are a lot of financial advisors get that get addicted to the cash flow they're making in the business. Uh, subsequently, it fuels their lifestyle. And then they're basically on that fishing hook forever, Duncan. And so being able to get to that position where you have a bankroll of money and planning your own finances is important. It's sort of like the cobbler's shoes, if you will. And then the other thing that really actually came on me even more when I sold my practice and I'm seeing with other practitioners, I know you often preach this concept of having the ideal client. And there are a lot of people that that when they look at it principally based, they say that makes 100% sense. But Duncan, I can't do that because if I fire this client, I'm going to lose my revenue. I'm worried about my staff. What if I can't make it up on the other side? And in actuality, they run their business backwards sometimes because they're forced mm. to make business decisions that affect their cash flow. Once people have gone through this selling process partially, fully, and they de-risk, boy, they really change as a business person. Not only are the bricks off their back, but they're starting to make, to me, I think even better business decisions about how they probably would have run the business. But now that financially they can do it, they run the business in a different way. And I think it, it's just interesting. Well, I'll come back to what you said about the work optional lifestyle, because I think through repetition, we hear ourselves so often and we think that, okay, 
the goal is to become financially independent. And yes, that's a goal. I don't know if it's the goal. I think the goal is to achieve that best version of ourselves. And your point about the entrepreneurship. So we've got one team we're working at. They're working with, again, incredibly rejuvenated. Two brothers. One who's been in the business, is a legend in the business, uh, has been in the business, I think, 30 plus years. Immense technical ability. His brother was from outside of the industry, comes in to start supporting uh, his brother in the business, but brings that entrepreneurial pedigree. So the practice management and the relationship management. And as they're working through the preparation of their liquidity event, and they plan on staying on the other side, they've never been more referable. Their business is growing organically. And what's ironic is the, the brother who's been in the business for lo- so long, he he openly says, look, my technical ability hasn't gotten any better But my business is growing through these headwinds. And it's because they're being more deliberate about running the business like a business. It's very, very fulfilling to see. Yeah, Duncan, I I saw one guy recently who his father had started the business and passed away when the advisor was younger, passed away in his 40s. And now the advisor is in their early 50s. And it's like, are you going to go down the path that your dad did? Or are you going to try to enjoy some of the fruits of your labor today? And he chose to sell his practice, not because he wanted to leave. He plans to stay forever. But now he can be much more selective, I think, than the clients that he's working with. There's so many advisors I hear that say, "Ah, I just hate doing this part of the business, or I hate just doing this part of the business, but it's the big B-U-T, Duncan, you know, but I have to do it because, and now I'm seeing those advisors, like you're saying, I think they're becoming their best version of themselves after they sell, not before they sell. And there's a credibility. I mean, if they're talking to their clients, you know, like we've often said, the the best way to be indispensable to a client when it comes to their own continuity and secession issues is to address your own in real time. And the symmetry of the advisor getting it right adds to that credibility when they're sitting down, helping strategically plan directionally how the client's going to address their own. There's just, it's, it's not theoretical. It's not, you know, doing it in a simulator. It's experiential. I've been there. I've done that. I've got a great degree of wisdom to assist you as you work through this. It's very powerful. Yeah. I mean, it's just like I say, it's been so exciting for me to see how many advisors that I've seen go through this process now just be de-stressed in life. It, it, it really is like a ton of bricks comes off your back. Yeah. You start to think more clearly. <clears throat> Family life gets better. You know, all of those things. Are, are benefits of going through this process. And, and again, whether people sell all of their business and stay, or they sell some of their business, it doesn't change the continuity plans with your kids or other family members. Like you mentioned, there are the two brothers. All, all those things uh, matter. And so I think for people who are thinking about looking at this, it's such a great time to look at it, not only for the financial reasons, but like you mentioned, these emotional uh, emotional reasons are very powerful. Yeah, so the elevation and and to your point, I mean, they hit their number, they achieved their goal, they still have the rest of their life to live. And not everybody wants to ride off and play golf and garden all day. <laughs> Some people, you know, they they do want to go to work because they want to. And that focus on not just what money is, but what it does 
when it becomes that much more real, it's very, very powerful. A customized podcast can add credibility and efficiency to your communication efforts. Sifting good prospects from the mass of suspects, staying top of mind with strategic partners, and activating more advocacy from existing clients can be achieved with a turnkey approach. Learn more at proudmouth.com. Do you aspire to consistently attract and keep great clients while driving the enterprise value of your business? Do you want to achieve professional contrast by supplementing your technical ability with a consistent client experience driven by best practices? The Blue Square Toolkit brings the proven Pareto Systems philosophy and process to life in a way that tethers your team so that you can competitor-proof your clients, gain their full empowerment, and attract quality referrals, all while restoring liberation and order in your life and all in an intuitive, easy-to-use, turnkey solution. Visit bluesquaretoolkit.com to get your 14-day free trial today. Now, of course, getting back into practical elements, it's not like the issues go away, right? HR issues and some of the minutiae, compliance and all of these issues, but you just have a different perspective on it. It doesn't wear you down as much when you are liberated and you've got the resources to maybe build out your bench a little bit further, be a little bit more picky with your bench strength, be more process driven. Uh, You can liberate yourself to focus on what you got paid to do instead of getting bogged down. And it's interesting. I often use that analogy. When somebody is just focused quantitatively on their number, and they, and they hit a number in terms of their cash flow, their revenue, income, and things like that, that can become a safety net that eventually can become a hammock of complacency. And we've seen that. And when they start to focus on, okay, enterprise value, exit strategy, with the premise, with the mindset of sticking around, plateau avoidance, now, okay, I can find that next gear. So that's very exciting too. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, you know, when you get to come into work every day, like I do now, I always love the marketing side of the business and I love leadership. I love helping people get to bigger and better heights in life. I just always detested the client service part of the business. I couldn't, I couldn't stand it. And, and uh, it really allowed me to get out of that part of the business that I hate. And I have found a renewed love for the business in doing the things that I love to do. I don't mind closing, Duncan. I don't mind being on meetings and closing. I don't mind generating the leads. I, and I haven't minded, I love it, but I just don't wanna sit down in 27 meetings a week and review Orion or, or Black Diamond or Allbridge stuff and say, how's your performance? I just, I don't wanna do that. And so it gives a practitioner a really good chance to augment their strengths and basically bury what they what they either don't like to do or they don't want to do. Well, and that's how it links up from the qualitative to the quantitative because going through the exercise, the leads start to fixate on what can I outsource, what can I automate, and what can I allocate to somebody else to just liberate me to focus on what it is I get paid to do and what I enjoy doing. So, okay, 
The third E is elevation. That's been the most pleasant surprise uh, with so many silver linings, elevating one's sense of purpose, elevating one's relevance and impact. Okay, so we check that box. Let's move back up to the quantitative. Let's talk about driving enterprise value. Okay, so the culmination, every investment of effort a financial services team makes working on their business, not in their business, not transacting, but plowing in sort of in a form of four savings. Let's talk about how to drive enterprise value. And one of the dynamics I love talking about in consultations, I had two in the last couple of days that have just been so fulfilling, is helping them understand that yes, you are a fee-for-service professional, you think for a living, but you have to progress through just your knowledge, okay? You're a knowledge-for-profit professional, but you got to think through your progression from knowledge where your credentials and designations, product knowledge, things like that, that all matters, but it's a foundation to build on. Then you move through to expertise, right? You start to have depth and breadth Uh, In terms of your relevance, you grow up market and focus on who you're suited for. So now you're building professional contrast and professional scarcity. But the, the next frontier is to get into this mindset of intellectual property, okay, where everything you're building is proprietary to you, your playbook, your best practices, and everyone's appreciation for your people, your practice, and your process. These are big drivers that contribute to enterprise value. So let's talk a little bit about those. Yeah, it's interesting because in seeing all the practices that that have gone through this process, let's talk about the big elephant in the room of what doesn't drive enterprise value, and that's money management. And anybody that's listening to or watching this, you probably believe that you have created the next ragu, you know, the next secret tomato sauce that you can sell for millions or billions of dollars. But the truth is that all of these buying entities do not care. They might be interested to hear your story that you trade options or you have some passive active portfolio, but in the end, it will not nudge your enterprise value at all. What will uh, nudge your enterprise value is first and foremost, how fast you can grow top line revenue. If you can prove that you're consistent in growing revenue, you know, at least 10% a year, but really ideally 20% a year, you become more valuable. And if you have a marketing engine that proves that you can get client acquisition come hook or crook, that is very, very valuable. And then from there, can you run a business that runs at least a 50% EBITDA? So after you pay your staff, your rent, all your other expenses, even throwing yourself in for a salary, can you net 50%? Um, It doesn't inherently hurt you if you're at 40, but if you're running a business where you're like, hey, I'm the leanest business going, I I do a million dollars of revenue, but I net $800,000, quite frankly, you're not buyable because somebody's going to have to run that thing one day. And so it might work for you from a lifestyle perspective because you collect cash flow, but it's not something you can sell. You might be able to sell it to somebody down the street, but when we're talking about what you mentioned, Duncan, maximizing enterprise value, showing top line compound annual growth rate or the term CAGR, having a marketing machine 
And then last, do you have systematized operations and potentially a generation two successor? Those elements, Duncan, can all add intrinsically to the multiple that you get for your business. What cannot? Your money management. Your money management is not is not going to add anything. I haven't seen it. If it happens, Duncan, I haven't seen it. Okay, so now we're getting into the weeds, and this is a very important point. So first of all, I mean, Ted and his team ride sidecar with their clients to demystify what this exercise looks like. And it's, it's a pure collaboration. So nobody's left to their own devices in order to drive enterprise value. But as a starting point, Ted, some of the things that you hit on there, do you have a checklist as a starting point that an advisory team could just get their head around in terms of the boxes they need to uh, check off in order to get themselves organized? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, you probably work on a lot of this with uh, Pareto clients, but you know, what, what's your operations manual? Do you, do you yeah. even have a manual that basically says how you do the workflows that you do? Do you actually do a P&L? You know, there are a lot of advisors that don't have a P&L or it's on an Excel spreadsheet. Well, that's not going to fly for a private equity company. You need a real quick booksy type profit and loss statement. And, and is it accurate? Is it categorized the right way? Like if you don't clean that up now, it's so much more difficult to sell the business down the road. So you want to get that P&L in place. Do you have a, a standardized marketing calendar? Is there a calendar that shows the marketing you're going to do? Or do you come in on Monday and it's like, hey, let's try this. Now let's try this. You know, that those are not saleable businesses for additional enterprise value. I'm not telling you you can't sell the business, but if you're looking at a multiple of 2x on your business and you want a multiple of 4 or 5x, all these things I'm mentioning are really important. And then last, Duncan, let me give you the checklist of legal. I I can't tell you how many advisors like do not have employment agreements with their staff or even have partners in the business that don't have employment agreements with the company or their operation operating agreement is no good listen you you need to be legally sound in what you're doing because remember if you're selling the business these questions are going to get asked down the road so if you make up all the bonus programs for your staff because it's just how you feel this year it makes it so much more difficult to sell the business so Having those legal contracts, operations manual, marketing calendars, boy, all these things, Duncan, make a difference in in trying to intrinsically tweak out higher enterprise value. And not to oversimplify it, but at a high level, it's absolutely imperative to define what's commoditized and what's proprietary. And like you said, the things that are commoditized, no matter how well you do them, are not going to take you through to that promised land of that big multiple. It's the proprietary things and how clean your business is and how organized it is behind the curtain that's what uh, is going to drive that. Now, what's interesting is that most of the people that you are brokering these alignments, these opportunities, it's not other advisors who are buying these businesses, correct? That's correct. You know, I, I would say in general, and it's actually other people <clears throat> that I know that do the, that day-to-day -day work of brokering the business, but they, when they do it, Duncan, I would say 99 out of 100 times, it's not another financial advisor. These are aggregators. Sometimes they're publicly traded companies. They're pure family offices. They're private equity companies. But 
Your worst sale, in my opinion, I'm not telling anybody on here, don't do it. I'm just telling you, if you want the lowest value possible for your business with the worst contractual language, sell it to another advisor. Then you can get the worst deal for your business. If you want the best deal, you need to be smart about what the negotiable world is. And unfortunately, in our careers, Duncan, we're just not exposed to that. There's no conferences around this. Every once in a while, mm -hmm. there's a round table, you know, somebody's talking about it. But most people don't actually know what they're talking about because they haven't been in the middle of deals. And like being a good real estate agent that only knows one part of one neighborhood, when you really know that street, you really know that street. And so you want to be around somebody that actually knows where um, where the multiples are. Well, and a big part of that is to focus on the legacy about what it looks like for your clients when the dust settles. And there have been, I've seen several examples where another advisor has bought a business, the transition occurred, and on the other side, it was anticlimactic. I mean, there's no... Uh, demonstrable improvement to the advisors or to the client's client experience, where coming back to the whole premise of elevation, if it is a private equity firm who's making the acquisition, if the resources on the other side are substantial, that means that certain steps can be taken to elevate the client experience. Yeah. And everyone needs to remember when you're, when you're negotiating a transaction, you really have three facets to it. Okay. Number one is consideration. And that is, what is somebody going to pay for your business? If you plan to stay, Duncan, and most people do for five years or more, some want to get out shorter, but a lot, a lot do, then the second piece of the negotiation is the ongoing compensation, not only on your legacy clients, but new clients. And if you're doing leadership, there may be other pieces of compensation to negotiate. And then three, if you're gonna stay five years or longer, I just call the last piece another bite of the apple, which means that if your business is doing two million of gross revenue today, and you think in the next 10 years, you're gonna grow it to four million, you may be asking yourself, <clears throat> well, why should I sell my business today if I'm gonna double it in the next 10 years? And, and maybe you don't, but if you do and you de-risk, maybe there's an opportunity to negotiate another bite of the apple if you grow it more. And I'm telling you 10 out of 10 times, mm -hmm. these companies wanna put another bite of the apple in there. So all of these are elements that it, it, it's like, if you're trying to negotiate your own deal and you've never done this before, and you don't know what the marketplace is paying and you don't know the players, you might've think you negotiated a good deal, but you'll only recognize that you didn't when you talk to somebody that got a lot better than you did. That's why you wanna be around the best when, when somebody's negotiating this. And that kicker that you talk about, it's not just in terms of just accountability and the, the carrot of opportunity down the road. I, I come back to the fact that it's, it's not just what someone gets from this experience, it's who they become because of the experience. But bottom line is you've developed and refined a bumper to bumper process that will demystify what this looks like. So that's not just a maximized opportunity, uh, and, and let's let's actually segue to there in terms of what it looks like to maximize the exit strategy. It's it's like anything; it comes down to time and money. You want to make sure that the money is maximized, but also the return on investment of time. And I often use this analogy because I saw this recently. Where I live, the real estate market was incredibly hot, and it was bordering on insane. The numbers 
the comps, they were crazy. And it's cooled off quite dramatically where people actually have to try a little bit harder to get the number they're shooting for, or even approach that number. And uh, not long ago, somebody who was a little bit on the lazy side, uh, it was revealed quite quickly that the market forces are real. And so the premise is, if you're going to sell a house for maximum value, you got to look at it through the lens of the buyer, which means you got to invest the money to declutter your house so that it looks like a show home. You got to invest the money. Don't do the home inspection in advance of listing the house. Make that investment to make a statement to the marketplace, but also to reveal the deficiencies so that if you get an offer, it's not conditional or the conditional, the probability is, is higher. And then stage the house so that when somebody walks in beyond the curb appeal and that first impression, in their inside voice, they walk into the house and very, very quickly say to themselves, I want this. This is exactly what I want. So it's bought, not sold. That analogy can be uh, applied to somebody who's getting ready to sell their house, declutter, inspect, and stage. Uh, safe to say? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is what I'm talking about with getting your, your legal contracts <clears throat> and getting your financial P&L in completely pristine shape is very, very important, including your operating manuals, everything that you could quickly explain your business. And then the quicker you can get the companies, the documents, and they're clean, the more confidence they have that, that the business is being run well. One thing that surprises me in this process is how many advisors don't understand the velocity of cash. And what I mean by that is there are advisors that will say, well, if I'm making a million dollars a year, <clears throat> why would I sell somebody my business for $10 million? Because my income is gonna grow. And I think over the next 10 years, I can probably make $15 million. It would be stupid to take $10 million today. The flaw in that logic is you have $10 million today. The million and a half dollars that you make in year 10 is not gonna be worth a million and a half dollars. And so we're talking to financial advisors that should understand the velocity of cash, but most people in their own analysis can't really understand what it means to have those kind of dollars in their pocket today. And that you have to kind of get, again, a lot of financial advisors are hooked to crack. You know, they make income from their business. It's how they completely live their lifestyle around that income they're gonna make from their business. And actually, it's not the way to run a business. It's not the way you would advise a client to run a business, but it's the way, Duncan, unfortunately, a lot of advisors do run their businesses. Well, and there's a sweet spot between instant gratification and delayed gratification and, and your panoramic mindset around the consideration for the value of the business, the compensation, if it is a sell and stay, and then that bite of the apple, the kicker, five years out. It's, it's the best of all worlds. So, um, okay, if I'm a financial professional and I'm toying with this idea, what's my next step? What do I do? You know, the best thing to do is that there's a website called sellyouraum.com, sellyouraum.com, and have a conversation. Find out, you know, first of all, are you saleable? You know, let, let's learn more about your goals and objectives. And, and look, even if you start the process, what's funny is <clears throat> you could pay somebody for a business valuation, but I'm going to tell you that most of the business valuations, Duncan, that I've seen by a multitude of companies in this business will say, your practice is worth two to three times recurring revenue. 
And that isn't that isn't the reality of the real estate marketplace. It's not. If you do north of a million dollars of of gross revenue, especially if you do north of two million dollars as a partnership or a firm, you can be in that five to six times on gross revenue. And and so you can get as many business valuations as you want. The only way by going to a website like sellyouraum.com is you can find out reality from fantasy. And and maybe you do nothing in the end, Duncan. Maybe you go through the process and you do nothing, but maybe in the end you find, oh my gosh, there was there was gold that I never knew existed. And it changes your life. It reduces your stress. You have a, a better world the next 10, 15, you know, 20 years. And that's what we're finding with a lot of financial advisors. Okay. So step one, go to sellyouraum.com. If if the fit process starts to accelerate there, do they do they have a conversation with you and somebody on your team? Well, to take it's it not. It's not me. Um, you'd have a conversation with some of the um, some of the people that actually do the the heavy duty brokering day by day. They actually will sit down with you and develop a profile of your business. Think about a one pager like Duncan's talking about here the 10,000 foot view of your business. They'll comb through your P&Ls to see where things will need to get cleaned up. And then you'll start to have first interviews or presentations with companies that may be interested to buy you. And remember, this is a this is a mutual process. They have to like you, but you have to like them as well because your clients are the most important part of the process. So you've got to make sure there's a cultural fit. And if there's a cultural fit, then usually they'll put together some sort of letter of interest, term sheet, indication of interest, and show you the metrics. And if the metrics are interesting, then you decide if you sign the letter of intent, go down due diligence, and start that process. Sometimes, Duncan, you never have to move from where you are at all. And then sometimes you do have to make a move depending upon your custodian and clearing and your type of business. But, you know, that's all that you learn in the process. Yeah, fair points. But again, there's no mystery. You've got bumper to bumper this defined. I'm curious, how long is the, is there a sense of urgency here or does this look like this opportunity window is going to stay open for a while? What do you, what's your sense? I, I view that question a little bit now, like, you know, the train leaving Chicago question. Uh, I, on one hand, I think you should have a sense of urgency because if I was a betting person and you're all in this business as financial advisors, I think interest rates are going to continue to tick up. And if they do, it compresses the multiples that companies will pay for businesses. Just like your client that got a 3% mortgage, if they're getting a 5% mortgage now, they generally can afford less home. So the, the same is true when somebody's buying your business. I think that piece of it is true. At the same token, we printed a lot of money and there's a lot of cash that's sitting at these companies. So the well, as long as it doesn't run dry here in the short term, the multiples will stay high irrespective of interest rates. So I, I think, Duncan, we probably have 12 to 18 months to see the kind of multiples that we have now. After that, I mean, my guess would be is that when money runs out and we stop printing and uh, interest rates are higher, uh, multiples will be compressed. And by the way, Look, I have no idea where the future of this business will be, but I've been doing it for 30 years. And I would tell advisors that if you really believe 100% that 10 years from now, you're going to be able to charge clients 1%, and I'm not saying do nothing, but not do that much, you are in for a disaster. 
I think over time, just like it was, Duncan, 20 years ago, SMAs and brokers charged 3% for wrap accounts. The average fees are down to roughly 1% right now. They're going to go lower. Or if the flat fee model is a cross-section against an AUM model, it's going to cripple a lot of financial advisors. And maybe you think you can weather that storm. But I got to tell you, this is the reason I think people should think about de-risking. And so the aggregators are all about scale. 100%. Yeah. If they buy your business at 11 times cash flow, they can probably sell their business eventually for 20 times cash flow. It's a it's an aggregation play, right? Whether they go public or they recap or however they decide they have an exit strategy, you know, you're never as powerful as a million dollar producer than if you're you're a 100 million dollar producer, right? I mean, that's just that that's the world we live in in this business. Okay. And then from this exercise, if I'm a financial professional, I get to identify and self-assess where I am in terms of my ambition for the future and my degree of contentment in terms of taking some chips off the table. So there's no downside in going through the exercise then. No, uh, the company that that really will walk you through the process, um, they are only paid success fees. So there's no retainer fees. It's just, you know, if a deal gets done, you pay. If there's no deal that gets done, then you don't pay. So there's a lot of risk on them and not a lot of risk on you. Hopefully you're serious about going through the process. But if you don't, certainly, obviously, hiring companies like yours and others to build marketing engines, to build systemization to your practice. These are are crucial, critical things if you want to sell your business for top dollar. And, and on that point, our role in this process is to enable the financial professional to adopt best practices, to run a more efficient business, and to position and reframe their relationships so the clients understand what this looks like directionally for them in the next five to 10 years. So we do play a role in that. Ted, great conversation as always. Any closing comments? No, I would just tell uh, everybody how much I I respect what you do. And and the one thing that you may not realize today is if you go through this process, it is going to stir up some emotions. You're not unlike any other business owner you've ever worked with. When you sell your baby, whether it's part of it or all of it, emotions get high. It's just like when you sell your real estate, uh, emotions get high. But that's what we're here for. Try to help you walk through the process, make sense of it all, make, make the best decisions for your clients, the employees in your firm, and you yourself. And the time and money dynamic is important, but the anticlimax and the seller's remorse, uh, you can get your head around that so far in advance. So you're making a great decision. As the saying goes, good positions lead to good decisions. (laughs) So I appreciate your time as always. So next step, go to sellyouraum.com to kick the tires, learn more, and then ultimately have a conversation with Ted's team. And uh, love to hear some feedback in terms of how that all goes. Ted, thanks a lot. Thanks, Duncan. Thank you for listening to Always On with Duncan McPherson, where our objective is to enable professionals to always be working on their business and on themselves. Want to learn more about Duncan and his team? Visit ParetoSystems.com. Don't forget to click the follow button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the hosts and or guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Pareto Systems. 
The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. This podcast is powered by Proudmouth, the influence accelerators. If you're like me and want to spend more time educating people and less time selling, Proudmouth helps turn Main Street experts like you into trusted mainstream authorities. They will help amplify your influence over a growing audience of magnetically attracted fans. Visit Proudmouth.com to learn more.